I'm going to read a, three scriptures, please, or three uh, sections of scripture. Firstly, we'll read from the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, and chapter 1. As you will know, if you don't, now's a good time to learn. The Epistle of Paul to the Romans is the, the handbook of the gospel. And uh, it wasn't necessarily written for that reason, but that is what it is. And so we should turn to Romans firstly, and I want to turn to chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul says, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from all from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Over please to the next epistle, the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, one Corinthians please, and again chapter one. Verse 17, Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, finally, at the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, and we'll read this time, please, from chapter 4. Timothy, please, chapter 4 and verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprieve, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of the ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And we trust that God will add a blessing to the reading of his word, and also help us and guide us in the discussion. Of it this afternoon. The topic for this afternoon has been announced, and you'll find it on the circular that has been given for the conference weekend. The topic is this why do we still preach in 2019? And it appeals to me that as we take a good look at this subject, that there are a number of preliminary issues that we need to, or a couple of preliminary issues that we need to first address before we delve into the subject. The first of this is that uh, I think we need to define what we mean by preaching. I've lived long enough to know this, that there are different definitions 
uh, may be driven by different agendas possibly, but there are different definitions as to what really constitutes bridging. And so I want to take a few moments just at the outset in our discussion to first of all consider that great preliminary issue, what do we mean by preaching? And just to give you a little bit of a spoiler, uh, we're really going to be thinking this afternoon about the public proclamation of the preaching of the Word of God, whether that be in an auditorium later, as our brother will have the responsibility, whether it be out on the streets, whether it be back in the Gospel Hall, that is all under the same umbrella term, we are speaking about the public proclamation of the Gospel. There's also another issue that that question raises in our minds, and that is, why are we specifying 2019? And why are we using the word still? Well, that kind of gives the game away, I suppose. A little bit, at least. Uh, we're not defining 2019 just because it is the current year, or I suppose that is a minor issue, but that's not really the main reason. I think the, the bigger clue is in the word still. And I want to consider just for a few moments at the outset of our discussion, having thought about what we mean by preaching, I want to just have a little discussion about why there is such an attack upon the public preaching of the gospel. In the country from which I hail, uh, I think it would be fair to say this, and not everywhere, but in a lot of places there is an attack on the public preaching of the word of God. Other methods are to be preferred. Now I don't want to, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be said, oh, I hope that you have that idiom here, otherwise that would mean nothing to you. But, uh, I, I don't want to get rid of everything. I want to put preaching in the proper context. And other ways in which we might spread the gospel, I want to put them in the context as well. But what I am really driving at this afternoon is that in that definition of preaching that we are going to make, which is the public preaching of the gospel, there is a concerted attack within society generally against oral communication, authoritative oral communication such as this. And But secondly, there is also an attack within Christian circles against the public preaching of the gospel. So we need to deal with those two and really set the context and the terms of our debate. And we well, it won't be a debate, I hope, but uh, it'll be a discussion, at least. And then we will set about discussing the main question that is before us. And I want to put before you, just so you have an idea of where we're going, uh, I want to put before you four reasons why we still preach the message of the gospel in 2019. Number one, is this, it is prescribed by God. And you might say, well, I know the message is prescribed. I know God has given us the message and we can't talk about with that, we can't fiddle with that. But uh, you say, really, has he, has he prescribed the method with which we use to communicate that message? Well, again, another spoiler, I want to say, yes, he has. And we'll consider that in our discussion firstly. So the first reason we still preach the gospel in 2019 is that God has prescribed it. Also, another reason why we still preach is that it is powerful in content. We read here in Romans chapter in Romans chapter 1, Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it contained, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So I want to think with you just for a moment about the content of the gospel and we might just think a little bit about what is necessary to be communicated the preaching of it. And I want to think with you, just these really, these two last ones, if we don't get to these, it won't be so bad as the first two, but uh, I want to think with you about the fact that the public preaching of the gospel was practiced in scripture, whether first in the New Testament by John the Baptist, and then secondly by the Lord himself and his disciples, and then by the apostles, and then by the evangelists. I want to think with you that it was the practice of scripture, whether we want to change it in our day and age or not. We'll have, to, we'll have to deal with this issue that Scripture stamped across it, stamped across our New Testament. 
is the public proclamation of the preaching of the gospel. The final reason, and this really is by the by, but it's very interesting, is that we preach the gospel still in 2019 because it is proven in 2,000 years of church history. Well, we maybe won't make much of that, although I find it very interesting. Reformations, one reformation. Revivals, great awakenings. And uh, our, our brother will tell us about 1859 if, if we get there with a fight. And the effects of that had started just in a little spot in Northern Ireland and spread right throughout the United Kingdom and down even to the south of England. But we're very glad for that revival. But uh, all had at their center the public preaching of the Word of God. Now, just before I sit down, one minor thing, although to my mind it's quite a major thing. If you're observant, you will be noticing that I'm the youngest of the three on the platform. Uh, I, I hope you're noticing that. Uh, <clears throat> if you're also observant, you'll know that uh, the preaching of the gospel is not my full-time occupation. And if you're really observant, you will be noticing that it is the full-time occupation of the men on either side of me. So, here's what we're going to do. This is not a Bible reading, I'm very thankful for that. And so, uh, in the industry in which I work, we use these kind of panel discussions quite often. Uh, that they, they're very often called issue panels. I, I'm hoping it's not going to become an issue panel this afternoon. But uh, what happens in those contexts is that kind of one rather dim-witted individual sits in the middle and hosts the discussion, and he calls on the expertise of the two on either side of him, or the three, or however it may be today, it's two, and he brings them into the conversation, and he really relies on them for the substance. So that's exactly what we're going to do this afternoon. I've set the framework, I've built the walls, as it were, and now we're going to rely on my two brethren on either side of me to help us furnish the rooms. You don't notice where the walls are, but you do, not, you do notice where the sofa is, and that kind of thing. So we're going to rely on them to help us with that. So I'm going to sit down now and we're going to start with this first of the preliminary questions that I think is important for us just to consider together. And that is, what do we mean by preaching? And I've said that we're really thinking about the public preaching of the Word of God. I wonder, David, maybe without picking with you, could you help us with the different Greek words that there are in Scripture? Because I think that's going to underpin for us exactly why where we get that teaching. Well, I was going to ask you, Brother Bervis, you see here in the middle, are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed. That's right. Keep using the right hand. I think. <laughs> 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 um, well, there are quite a number of words, as you know. Uh, I suppose the two basic words, not actually the two basic words is the word that we usually associate with evangelism or good news, that type of thing, the announcement of glad tidings. But then the second word is is a word that maybe in its background had the idea of a, a herald who made announcements uh, on behalf of a royal court. So those are the two main, the announcement of good tidings and a herald who made an announcement with the authority of, uh, of the court behind them. If you want to enlarge on that or... Yeah, I, I think that's very helpful. So they are the two main words. I think the, the English word preaches in our New Testament about 130 times in different forms. And I think about 90 times they are the two words that are, that are used. Now there, are, there are, are another couple of words. There's one word in particular that's very interesting, which is the 
the word from which we get the English word dialogue, that's used in Acts 17, but, and it's actually translated there preach. It seems to me that quite a lot of mileage is made out of that one reference to it. So, for example, a dialogue, this is a, it's not really a monologue, but I'm speaking now in monologue fashion. A dialogue is a back and forth, a discussion, it's the interaction of two parties. Paul did do that, but he didn't do it very often, and he did it in a very specific context. So we're not saying that there is no place for that, but what we're saying generally in the New Testament, that, that the idea is the public preaching of the gospel. And even, even that dialogue word mayn't always denote dialogue as we know it. May be a, it may be a, a, a message that has dialogue in it, where the speaker asks a question, what happens of it, and then he also answers the question. It may not be dialogue in the sense of preacher-audience interaction, or the Socratic method where he's reasoning out by his own question and answer format. Just the word announced the good tidings that evangelism word preached the gospel. It was two of the big uses in Greek literature. Number one, if a new emperor had been born, they made a special announcement through the emperor. The empire which was called Gospel Message, Euangelion. A new emperor has been born. There's hope possibility of a new era. The second usage of that word, the verb especially, was the announcement of a victory in battle. And maybe that would nearly feed in a wee bit of our gospel preaching. We tell the people that a new deliverer has been born, and we also tell the people the good news that he is a victory in battle and freedom and salvation is all possible. Very good. So the idea then that we're really thinking about is the authoritative heralding forth by one person, at least in a specific context, one person in the preaching of the gospel, proclamation of that of that good news. So I think that then raises another question in our mind, and that is, well, what about other forms of evangelism? What about, for example, let's just take a look at some of the things that are generally done: ESL classes, and youth work, and senior work, prisoners work, and homeless work. All of these exhibitions, personal witnesses. We're not saying, and I, I think Peter, maybe if you want to come in on this, please, please jump in. But we're not saying that they don't have a place. We're not saying that, that they are irrelevant and we shouldn't go into them. Not at all. But what we are saying is, is that right at the pinnacle, if you like, right at the centre of assembly outreach in the gospel, is the public proclamation of, of the gospel. We both happy with that. Very good. Okay. Yeah, and when we speak about, you often hear the expressions about gossiping the gospel, just talking to your neighbour and so on, that's very good personal witness and so on. But I have observed, not by any means always, but I have observed that even you know, conversations with people, very often they'll go so far, and you can go so far in your personal conversation, and what then is required? is to bring your friend, to bring your contact, to hear the public proclamation of the gospel. And when they hear the message being feelingly and faithfully communicated, that can take them far further than even private conversation. But even apologetics. These apologetics, as a great 
modern way, apologetic debates on creation. All very, very good. But in my personal opinion, seriously limited in the salvation of a soul. Those are pre-evangelism. We convince a man about creation. And when that's all done, he still needs Christ. So the preaching is a way beyond those are perverted tracts, all those other things, apologetics, great things, but handmaids to the main, the main communication for this. So there's, there's one other thing that I want to add in here as well, and we were talking about this last evening in my house, you were alluding to it earlier, and that is, is that we need to be very careful as well in one other regard, and that is, what we say publicly can be seriously undermined by a life that doesn't add up. Now that's not the subject of the discussion today, but I just want to put this on, on register right now that I'm aware of this, and that this is taken as a given for today's topic. That you can preach as faithfully, and you can preach as eloquently, and as theologically soundly as you like, but if the life doesn't add up to it, then it's worth nothing. Now, I should qualify that again. God will graciously use the preaching of men that have proven to be failures in order to see great things done, I think we should at least acknowledge that that has happened. But great damage is done to the testimony by lives that don't add up to the message of the gospel or the, or the import of the faithfulness of that message. Now the second preliminary question that I said we really needed to look at is why specify 2019? Somebody once, this was some time ago, um, I don't know whether he was being kind of a little bit a little bit uh, not malicious, I think that's too strong a word, but he, I think he was kind of just trying to see where he could get with me on the subject. But he, 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 he emailed me a, a little excerpt of a, of a study that had been done uh, in the academic world and it was reported in Science Magazine that reached this conclusion that teaching that turns students into active participants rather than passive listeners reduced failure rates and boosted scores and exams by almost one half a standard deviation. Just to remain into English for you, uh, that's a, that was about six percent within that context. So six percent, I suppose that's uh, that's significant. That could be the difference between a, an A and a B. Well, it was the point that he was really making with this was the method doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, the first point I would make about that is that the spiritual discipline of preaching is very different to the secular discipline of lecturing. I've sat in many lectures Ed, and I've heard and I've been as bored as the next person. Uh, I've been thinking to myself, right, I just need to learn about the economic theory or whatever, or the lack of curve of taxation or whatever it might be, and then I just need to get out of it. You know, I have, I have sat in very, very few gospel messages and thought, that man really doesn't really care whether I believe this or not. Very few. I've, I've sat in very few and thought, that, that man really has got no interest in my soul. Very, very few. I've sat in many lectures and thought, that man doesn't care if I believe this or not. Many of them. So there's a big difference between lecturing something and preaching something. That's the first thing. So I don't really think that that, that really stacks up as a, as a critique of the public preaching of the gospel. Because the two disciplines are very different. But the point I would make with it is this, is that even if that scientific research is true, and I'm sure it is, we would still preach anyway because we're commanded to preach. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here is the, the word that we have there. He says, it's please God by the foolishness, or through the foolishness, the relative foolishness, as in the in the eyes of the world, there's nothing foolish about preaching, but in the eyes of the world there is. It pleased God through the relative foolishness of preaching. What's that word? 
the Caruso word, the public call of the gospel to save those that would believe. So we, we need to understand this, that there is an attack in society, and unfortunately, that attack has come into Christianity. Now there are, it's not my job here to be critical of other Christians in other places, but I have spoken that we go down to the town center on a Saturday morning once a month and we have cold and open air. And there's five other churches. I always look at the, there's one long street of Vista. You're very welcome to come whenever you want. Just don't all come at the same time. But uh, there's one long street in Vista called Sheep Street. And uh, we preach right at one end of it. And every Sunday, uh, every Saturday morning, I call it running the corner for the poor people that are out shopping. Because they have to get past the faith leaders. Then they have to get past the Jehovah Witnesses. Then they have to get past the Methodists. And they have to get past the singers from the, from the local community church. And then eventually they get to us where they get where they perceive at least they're getting shouted at. Uh, I, I hope it's not really that in reality, but that's what they perceive. Going shopping on the third Saturday of the month in Vista is a perilous business if, you, if you're not aware of what will be taking place in the town centre. So I've spoken to a couple of them as I walked down. They said, why do you insist on that preach? You know, it's much more effective playing the guitar. We've got more people listening to us than playing the guitar. That's true. And there's more people here coming that getting down on their knees and wanting us to put our hands on and heal them than what you're doing. And there's more people that are listening to us and asking for literature and all the rest of it. That's what we hear. But that's not the point. The point is this, is that God has commanded us to preach. And whether we think it's good or not, and whether we think it's right or not, we do, of course. But that's, that, the, the point stands the same. God has commanded. So it is under attack. And the purpose of this afternoon really is to defend it and to show from Scripture that it is God's chosen method of preaching. Just to help us all, those of us who attempt to preach, should we make a difference in our thinking between preaching at people and preaching to people? And is, is one of the things that sometimes maybe has brought them Preaching into disrepute, people perceive they're being preached at rather than preached to you. Is that splitting hairs that don't really count? Or? Well, you've got much more experience than me in this subject, but I, I perceive that is, that is correct. There is a manner in preaching that, that should be maintained. There's a dignity to it. There is a, you take the models of the, of the Prince of Egypt that preaches the Lord Jesus himself. We never accuse him of preaching at The authoritative preaching of the gospel, but yes, I think sometimes we think of the power of the preached word is from our human power of standing behind the pulpit and elevating our voice and preaching at the people and thinking that we should do the spirit of God's word by, by bringing them to repentance. And so we're going to rub the sin in their face and and we're, we think that the power is in our powerful preaching. I, I, I think if we, I think the power must be in the, the Word of God itself. Is it um, the authority of preaching? I, I thought of a herald in the days when there was no PA system, they had to shout. But if they had a PA system, would they go around and still shouting and uh, hurting people's ears? But sometimes, uh, and it's still good to elevate your voice and have that variation. Um, that's part, part of the process. But that's not where the power comes from in us shouting 
in a gospel meeting on, at 7.30 on Sunday night. That's not the power. The power is in the, the message that we're preaching. Maybe again, I'm not sure just the order of things that you wanted to mention. When we're preaching to people, is it important maybe to keep in mind that we preach to a complete person? Uh, we don't isolate his emotions and just tell soft stories that play on his emotions and emotional. We preach with emotion, but we don't employ emotionalism. You can tell me if you think that. And don't manipulate people. Neither do we isolate their mind. <laughs> As our brother Herman say, just give them a lecture, just imparting information and so on. But we touch the mind, also reach the emotion, and also, in especially gospel preaching, maybe aim for the conscience. Well, so that we, 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 we treat we treat human beings as whole human beings as you complete personalities of a spirit of need. Do you agree with that? I do entirely agree with that, yeah. But you are slightly ahead, but I'm happy for you to take us into that because that'll move us into the main the main uh, question that we have before us. Uh, in two Timothy chapter four, I think that's the thrust of what Paul is saying to Timothy. <coughs> Preach the word, he says. Reprove. Uh, that's really convict. Preach the way in such a preach the word in such a way that the message will penetrate and convict of sin. And then, uh, not, not only does he speak about about reproving, but the the idea that he has there is rebuking. So the point that he's he's making is that you don't need to tell him that you think he's guilty, she's guilty. What you need to do is point out that the word of God is doing the rebuking. It's not for the preacher to rebuke somebody. I think that you're such as a or, or whatever it may be, you're the guiltiest sinner. Or, or, that's not the point. It's to allow the word of God to do the teaching. And then the, the third point that he, he makes about that is to exhort, which is to call, encourage to repentance and faith in Christ. So that Paul wasn't leaving Timothy. Timothy just preached the word. He was actually being very specific about how that preaching should take place. Now, let's jump into that then. So here's the main question. Why do we still preach in? 2019. The first answer to that is given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and that is it is prescribed by God. And the command is given by Paul to Timothy, preach the word. The point I would note about this is that it is an imperative. That is, and I, I don't want to get involved too much in grammar, but grammar sometimes is useful. Uh, it's an imperative that is an aorist imperative. So if I'm right in my interpretation of this, you'll certainly help me out and assist me if I'm not. But uh, if I'm right in my interpretation, an aorist imperative really has the idea of urgency, an urgent thing that needs to be done. The present imperative is the idea of habitual, carry on doing it, keep doing it. But this really is the idea of do it and do it urgently. And you'll see as you go down the text that Paul had a, had a motive for telling Timothy to do that because there were going to come times when people won't endure sound teaching. They won't listen to it. So you start preaching the word and make sure that that is getting it. So then, does this urgency that you, you, you have to say is there in verse 2, does that spring out of what we have in verse 1? There's judgment for all. There's the second coming of the Savior, the yeah. kingdom. Eternal issues. We're not here playing with people. Eternal issues depend upon this. So that in our gospel preaching, it's not glum. 
And uh, if you ever preach in ministry, not glum, but at the same time, should we avoid undue flippancy? I'm not saying no humor or anything, but undue flippancy or levity, because eternal issues are buried in the whole thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. There is a dignity to the gospel that is driven really about what, what is on the line, as you point out, verse 1 underlines for us what is on the line. These are eternal issues. The gospel meeting is the most serious. I shouldn't use comparative terms like that, but sometimes you, you find yourself doing it. When I I really feel that when you sit in a gospel meeting where the preacher is evidently getting help, the spirit is active, the word of God is being is really you can feel that it's making progress and it's penetrating. You really get a sense of what is of what is taking there's a spiritual activity to it. There is a, a real sense of eternity about it. We've all, I'm sure, from time to time being in meetings like that. Would to God that we were in more meetings like that. The first one is the reason why that takes place, because there are eternal issues that are on the line. Does that introduce just another saving? You're speaking with that sense of eternity and reality. Which which would you think, or should we all think, especially those of us who attempt to preach from day to day, which is the more important, and those are both related, the preparation of the message or the preparation of the man? You're asking me. I'm asking just what do you think about that? Well, again, you would know far better than me, but I, I, I remember once I've been in, in, involved in limited gospel preaching, and uh, I was preaching with a brother once early in my life, uh, maybe less well known over there. Um, you would know him, my brother Ian Jackson, and I was preaching with him one time, and you know, I was really struggling throughout the day to get my message. And I remember him saying to me, he said, listen, he says, the gospel is the gospel. He says, you can preach from the Old Testament, you can preach from the New Testament, you can focus on a different thing from night to night, you can take up different things. He says, but if I was you, he says, I would spend all your time preparing yourself. And I learned a lesson that day, and that was, you know, we can come with our, our messages of, you know, the God who loses and loves and lives and all of these different, and I'm not criticizing that for one, the more organized you are in your gospel structure, the better off you'll be. But we can come with all of that and it can fall flat because the man's not prepared. And I, I learned that lesson that day that I, I think, and I think you probably, the way you've led me in the, in the conversation now, I think you'll agree with me that it's much more important to be prepared as a person, as a man before God, than it is to have your message. Surely. There are times when you're just not in the spirit of form for preaching or even for praying for that matter. Brethren, call on a brother who's happened here today and have no problem with it. The brethren call on a brother so and so pray. The brother might be in prayed for that day. One of the great preachers of a previous era, he was invited to go to preach. He said, I'll go and preach. He said, just but at the minute, he said, I don't want you to ask me to pray. He said, I'm not in good praying for, but I'll preach. <laughs> now, there are some of the meeting that have been double dutch to but there are others that don't mean exactly. There are times when you cannot lead in public prayer. Because you're not, but you can preach. The two different activities. Speaking to men on behalf of God and speaking to God on behalf of men. Two different activities. And what I was going to, uh, I was going to say, one of the dangers of preaching that I find, I'm sure, I'm aware you can help us with that. And, uh, our brother here as well, just, Sometimes you can have an outline, 
Angus great brother mentioned four bells or peas or and you have the outline and you have it all said. Never make the mistake of thinking that an outline is a message. An outline is not a message, no more than a skeleton is not a person. If you just have a skeleton, you have nothing but bones, no meat, no flesh. Get your outline, don't be perfect, you can show it, you can show it, but keep it like the bones in your ribs, keep it fairly well hidden, and keep the flesh on it. That can be a danger to think that uh, you don't go far enough in your preparation. Marvin, I'm just, um, I'm still, I, I struggle with these formats, but um, I'm still thinking about 2019, and uh, it's still away, and I, I do this, uh, I love preaching the gospel, it's a wonderful privilege. Um, I wonder sometimes if this pendulum has swung too much um, in some circles, in that we have put all our eggs in the one basket, that we can focus so much on the authority of preaching the word of God that it lets all the rest of us off the hook. Um, we'll have our four weeks of gospel meetings, and that's our commitment to the gospel. Um, and I think the pattern in the Acts, uh, Acts 8, of just looking at it, um, when there was persecution, they were all scattered abroad. The Christians were scattered abroad. And they, and it was translated, preached in the King James, um, but they were actually sharing the gospel with their neighbors everywhere they went. And then the next, very next verse is still, he goes and has the authority to preach it. So both are required, our individual witness. Like in, on this continent, in the last five years, I've, been, I've helped out in a series of gospel meetings where thousands of invitations were distributed. Tremendous expense to the assembly, and it was the first series of meetings that I had been involved in where not one single person came to the gospel meeting other than the Christian church, despite thousands of invitations given out and everything else, which leads me to think maybe we're putting too much emphasis on the preaching. We're doing our meetings, but where are the relationships of the individual Christians, their co-workers? What, what's happened there? So the pendulum can swing. So both are, I think we're all reasonable about it. Uh, a problem I have speaking someone can come back if I'm not at all. <laughs> but I just, I, I think sometimes we can rely on the professionals to stand behind the pulpit. But the real, um, effectiveness is when we're both doing it together as individual Christians, our lights are shining and we're building relationships and we're sharing the gospel. Then, when the gospel meetings are held, there is someone to attend. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I feel what Brother Peter said. I was involved in gospel meetings in Ireland not so very long ago. And myself and another brother, we did the calls, gave out the cards, did the invitations, went round. We made a managed to encourage a couple to come. But there were two sisters in the assembly, and one of them, on a couple of the nights, had six of her work colleagues there, and another one had ten. Those two sisters got far more to the gospel meetings than myself and my colleagues. They were invaluable for the effort. But then you need men to preach, 
and that the gospel is being preached, and this is the subject that our brother, our brethren are mentioned, and the subject's being preached, the gospel is being properly preached, faithfully and feelingly, then Christians are motivated to try and bring people. I have been at gospel meetings where there was such a fumbling match. We believe the Holy Spirit can work in God over rules. It's a mercy that he over. But there was such a fumbling match in the platform and such a clumsy communication of the message. I was nearly thankful there weren't too many people there. Because the thing was just a discredit to the glory of the message that we preach. And brethren, you don't preach the gospel because you're my cousin. And I like you. You're my dear friend's father. If you're going to ask you to preach the gospel, then probably you, you might be gifted to preach. So if you're not gifted to preach, and it's obvious, then you're not asked to preach. Do we believe in gifts or do we not? Or do we believe every man gets a trial? Well, we all got a few tries. Got a few. And eventually people give us a benefit of the doubt. We all need opportunities. But people who repeatedly show they are not there for public service, there are plenty of other types valuable avenues of service beyond preaching, as I just said, sisters and what they can do and so on, but still there. Just the next chapter, after Brother Peter, I have my finger in it here myself, uh, Brother Mervyn, ask, I want to ask you just in this business of preaching, you, you didn't turn to it, but it, it tells us, for example, in, in one of the verses in Acts chapter, it's a big preaching chapter of the, the New Testament that our brethren have been saying, more preaching in Acts 8. Philip and the cities are very unpreached, Christ unto them. Very good. Then verse number 25, I think it is. When they testified and preached the word of the Lord. Not Christ. The word of the Lord. Then you get to the end of the chapter of the section we knew very well. Philip opened his mouth. Same scripture. Preached unto him. Jesus. Preaching Christ, preaching the Lord, and preaching Jesus, all in the one chapter. I'm not thinking so much of the minor thing there. Should we have, you have emphasized very much authority in the scripture and all that and ability given. Should we also have audience sensitivity and change our emphasis according to the people who we're addressing? Same message, but different emphasis. Or Paul certainly did. I'm thinking of preaching Christ to a Jewish audience, right? Or preaching Jesus, the historical Jesus, to a man who was an Ethiopian, didn't know anything about who Jesus was. So maybe I'm wrong in this, uh, Peter and yourself. It's not one of the big things that we are up against, especially in gospel preaching. The biblical illiteracy. Yeah. Yeah. People, people have a clue. That, that's a big problem in, in, in the South of England now. England has sent missionaries all over the world. We need the missionaries coming to us right now. And the issue that you get is you get somebody that comes in and they, you know, they, they, they preach. They, they read from Genesis 8. They assume that everybody knows about Noah and the Ark. They assume that everybody knows that the Ark is a picture of salvation. They quote 20 hymns from the Good Gospel hymn book throughout, some of them twice or thrice. And they, and, and they wonder why people think, what on earth are you doing? What is this about? I tell you what we need in England, and I can only speak for England, but we actually need people to, to get right back to the basics, like Paul did in, in, on Mars Hill, to start talking about the concept of a transcendent God. 
it, it feels like that sometimes that you know we are we're, we're preaching way above we're preaching just for a, a very select part of the audience that's how i feel as well do you agree with that oh, yeah, sure. they think they're only <clears throat> there are plenty of preaching in the scripture all over the book especially the new testament but as you well know there are only three individuals who are actually called the preacher in the bible Ecclesiastes Solomon, the preacher, remember thy creator. So as a gospel preacher, we introduce the creator. Second man Noah, he's the preacher of righteousness. So we preach righteousness and God's standards. And so the third man Paul, he says, I'm a preacher about the one who gave himself a ransom for all. So we cover all of this. Christ, human need, judgment to come, and especially preaching grace. And so, in this, I mean, we've covered this already, but let's just go back to it for a moment. I think this, this segues into what you've been saying or comes from what you've been saying. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That does kind of give us a kind of an order there. I mean, let me use an illustration for a minute, a personal illustration. I haven't used too many of those, just, just for a moment. It's not exactly a flattering one, so that'll be fine. When I first went out into the world of work, I, I really wanted to be a salesman and uh, I wanted to be out on the road meeting people and talking to them and that was what I really wanted to do. Well the managing director of the company that I was in heard about this, I was only about 22 or 23 at the time. He said to me, he called me into his office one day, he said, I hear you, you really want to be out and about, not just bound in the office. So I thought, great, he says, that's fine. He says, we'll send you out once a week mentioned two men in the office that are experienced salespeople. She says, you'll go out with them, and he says, you'll be with them, and you'll, and you'll learn. So I thought, that's great. So I, I remember, I just I was full of pride, just thought I'd, I'd won the lottery, so to speak. Uh, and there we were, going up to London on the train. After, when, when I look back on it, it's just embarrassing. But anyway, going up to London on the train to see the, the chief information officer of a major London bank. It's not in existence anymore due to the 2008 crisis. But anyway, that was... That was what I was doing. And uh, we went the first time and, he, and, and Jonathan, he spoke and he, he led the meeting. And he was analytical and he was listening and he was doing everything right. We're on, we're, next week we're going up for the second one. He says, do you want to lead this meeting? So I thought, do I want to lead this, this meeting? What a silly question that is. I thought, oh, sure, do I? I'm trying to curtail my enthusiasm a little bit. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. That's not a problem, you know. So we went into this meeting and uh, there I was. I talked about the company, the origins of the company, where it came from, its performance over the years, what it could do for you now, the variety of its products and its services, and what it, its marketing campaigns. And I spoke for 45 minutes like this, and at the end, this chief information officer looked at me and said, thank you. I thought to myself, that's, that's interesting. We're on the train on the way home and Jonathan turns to me and he says, he says what went wrong there? I thought, what went wrong there? I, 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 was, uh, I was eloquent, I was all the rest of it. And uh, he said, well, that was fine. He says, you did really well. He says, you've learned your stuff. He says, you know about our service. He says, but you didn't stop once and ask the man about what he needed. So I took that away. Two weeks later, I was helping with some evangelism in the city in the south of England called Salisbury. I'm handing out leaflets all day. Nobody's taking it. Everybody's just going by me to throw it up on the floor if they did take it. Eventually I got frustrated, I saw an older gentleman coming towards me, I said, I handed him in, he looked at me, as if to say no, I said, God loves you and he's got a great plan for you. He turned and he said to me, he says, I love myself and 
I've got my own plans. Do you know what? Just in a moment of time there, I put the two things together. The same mistake I've been making in the secular world was the mistake I was making of the gospel. So I was going straight to the solution. Straight what we could do, what God can do. Yeah, you can tell, and I'm sure there will be many sinners who have been won over on the spot by what God can do, but the majority of sinners have got little care for what God can do because they don't see what God thinks of them. They've never for once ever stood back and seen the darkness that they're in and seen the express need that they have before God. And so Paul says here, he says, reprove, number one, rebuke, number two, and exhort, number three. And I do not think that that order is inconsequential. I think there is a principle that is being laid down there. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go to your gospel meeting and start with your ruin and move on to your remedy and then on to responsibility. Although for younger preachers, I would say that's a good format to start with to begin. Just to get yourself up and go. I see many good gospel preachers start with the responsibility and bring in the, the need for the responsibility because God has moved. And then bring in the need. They've done it the other way around. I, I've seen that done very eloquently. But what I do want to say is this, without effectively getting down to the need that the sinner has, the solution that God has provided is irrelevant to them. And we will try in vain with silly little things like God loves you, he's got a great plan for you. That is look at you and say, in, in my context, that means nothing to me because I love myself and I've got a great plan for myself. So we need to understand that God has given us a pattern in preaching, a public declaration of it, but also we must be addressing the need, the remedy, and then the responsibility have to respond to it. I was just in connection with that. I was looking there. There are three words, three words inscribed at the podium there that we had in the previous sessions. Engagement, nourishment, and transformation. I think there's a good bit of preaching in it. First of all, you engage the audience. It amazes me there are some dear brethren and they could preach and if everybody was a block of concrete, it would make no difference. Or a block of ice. Everybody was sleeping. People are sleeping and go for my nerves. You know, people start to drift. You must get engagement. Not must be not just communication. There must be connection. Eyeball to eyeball, thought to thought. Engagement. Then nourishment. You're not just shouting, you must be communicating something. Something that they can close there. And then you don't just leave it and say, well, I've given you a lot of information. Sleep well. Transformation. Having engaged them, having connected with them, put something into their mind, you wanted to transform their life. And there's another, that's what happened in the synagogue. Perfection of preacher. The Lord read the scripture. He spoke. The eyes of all were fastened. They'd never heard the likes of this. Captivated with the prince of preacher. Then, as soon as the Savior applied the preaching, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The whole situation changed. So there was application of not just not just the communication of information to a man's mind, apply it to his conscience for transformation of the man's life. So that that's the whole the whole concept. And, and the occasion just happens a wee bit. I, I, Preach the gospel, preach the gospel at the funeral. Preach the gospel at the open air. Preach the gospel inside the walls of a room. That's all different. 
Always, dear brother, I say, have a sensible occasion. If you're preaching at a funeral, don't make it appear as if you're preaching in the open air. And if you're preaching in the open air, you'll have a slightly different tempo and approach inside the confines of a gospel hall. Nothing stereotype. There's the authority of preaching and the adaptability of preaching where a man has a sense of audience and a sense of occasion. I mean, uh, does that is that partly not all the years? That partly was in here in season and out of season. Yes. So the idea is not you uh, hitting up the surface. It's not preach when you're up and when you're down. But that might be connected. I think that's much more connected with having a sense of occasion, having a sense of the context in which you are. As you rightly said, there are those who preach up there a funeral in the open air, and like they're at the open air at a funeral. It's 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 not sensitive. It's the same message, but the same message, but a different. Just before you move on from reproving and reviewing, those do sound like harsh terms. So does that give? So is that not the person I turn to if I want to be evident racist approach um, in my preaching? If, uh, like, like how? Like how would you communicate the truth? Like what are you doing when you're reproving? And what are you doing when you're rebuking? Uh, in a gospel, what does that look like? Um, you're pointing, uh, but just and while you're preparing your response, uh, um, sometimes if we have the meeting to a gospel meeting, we speak of John 3 16, and we're, it's a beautiful message. But if someone off the street comes in, we think we've conducted them up a bit, they're probably much more aware of their need than the mayor. But because of their circumstances in life, we feel that we can be much harsher, perhaps much more abrupt, rub their sin in their face. Um, but the mayor comes in, we treat them with kid gloves. Um, so, you know, I'm just wondering what we prove and really should look like to whatever. I know we have the judge the audience and that type of thing, but. Well, I think you have something in your mind. So no, I, I said it all. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is on my mind. So I think take advantage of people yes. who, are, who haven't had the, the, the privileges that we've had. Yeah. And, and when they come in, they get a scolding, and we, we have, we'll tell them they're living in sin, and they're in that hell treat and single them out in the audience. But if the mayor comes in, we, we don't talk about the money under the table that he's taken in the drives. Or, and we, we would we, we soft. That's all very soft. What I'm thinking of on that, Brother Peter, is it, is it important? I'll ask you a question. Is it important to remember that a gospel preacher is primarily, in big capital letters, he's primarily an announcer of good news. He's not a protester, he's not a protester against the ills of society. He's not standing there rambling about the ills of Genesis 19. He's a preacher of good news. He's not an Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, and he confronted Herod with his adultery. We're not Old Testament prophet. He's something they are, but no, he's, he's not. We're not Old Testament prophets. And we're not protesters against the ills of society. As our brother said, we're preaching to people already in a broken world. Broken people, a 
but we have a remedy and good news until they're going to hell. Nobody spoke about hell as much as the Lord Jesus. Who did he talk about? Who did he speak to about hell? You say the publicans, the sinners, no. The hypocrites, the religionists, the hard-boiled Pharisees. To the common rank of the Lord said very little about hell. Told them the good news of forgiveness and so on. It was the religion. Sometimes I think we maybe have our emphasis wrong. That's what I'm thinking about. But our identity or our identity on audience sensitivity and approach and so on. We're also not here to redeem the culture. So we talk about the ills of society. We believe in redemption, but we don't believe in national redemption. Well, at least not in this context. <laughs> That's another subject for another time. We believe in individual redemption. So the gospel message is targeted at the mind and at the will and at the conscience of the sinner, not at the society generally. We're not here to preserve some kind of national liberty or some kind of national uh, pride in our Christian values. That's not what we're here for. We're here to get to the heart of the sinner. I think these things are, could be uh, vices for us in our preaching. I, I, I noticed, Peter, just to come back to your question, you said you wanted to stick with reproof, rebuke, and so The next phrase really gives us how we do that. With all unsuffering and doctrine. So we're not to go light on them in the sense that we're not to confront them with truth. We are to confront them with truth. That's the idea. But the manner in which we do it is to be to do it with patience. Uh, now that takes experience. That takes being roughed up yourself a few times by by sinners who don't want to listen to what you're doing or what you're saying. That and that takes above all a godliness that that isn't just drop on you. That comes from a life that is that has developed that. So Paul is saying this to Timothy, don't give up. The first time somebody comes in and says, I'm not interested in that, just do it with patience, perseverance, and also do it with doctrine. Even, sorry, I'm going to keep you back, where I'm thinking of preaching to even the believers. It's very easy for the preacher to get a wee bit rabbi and to vent on the audience his own frustration. You know, I heard about, I heard about a, a man who was very much on the platform when he, he happened to go to hear another preacher who started up his message and just didn't seem to, a very accomplished preacher, didn't seem to be just getting away with it. There were quite a few barbs, and quite a few side swipes and negative things unnecessarily coming into his message. And uh, this gentleman, this preacher who was listening to the other man and appreciated him, often received help from him. He made the comment afterwards, he said, you know, to his wife, he said, I think the problem was with Brother So-and-so today, he wasn't preaching from the overflow. He was preaching from the undertow. You need to watch that when you're preaching. Brother saint or sinner, preach from the overflow of a heart warm to Christ, not the undertow, scolding, giving a swipe at something, that's the undertow, the carnal undertow that can circulate in any preacher's heart, we're just humans, and it very quickly comes out to your audience, he's preaching from the undertow, just the grapes of his own person, rather than the overflow of his heart on the subject. That's a thing that belongs to him. Now, thank you very much for that, Brother David. Now, 
was just to hope that he would do it better the next day. That's a bit of a hope we met. The final thing I just want to, before we, before we close here, is I just want to, this is really kind of a circumstantial and a, a parallel point. We, we go to the authority of Scripture primarily, but I do want to make this point. The effectiveness of the public proclamation of the gospel as God's mandated method is proven in 2,000 years of church history. All of us here today, whether we like it or not, are products of a reformation. We don't take the title reformed, in fact we definitely don't take the title reformed. And one of the great characters at the centre of that reformation was a man who, well, we use this name pretty carefully as well, a man named Calvin. Well, my wife and I, just after we were just after we were married, we decided to go on a, on a day trip to Geneva. You say, what a romantic you are. Well, she wasn't very fussed about it to start with, but she, she got into it when we got there. And uh, I, I had always wanted to see Geneva and the historical part of it and that. They took us to Calvin's church, and they showed us something that Calvin did, and was a product of the Reformation. These old churches, if you, when you go around the countryside of England and go to these old churches, you'll find something. You walk into it, the university church in the centre of Oxford, you pass the, the shrine to C.S. Lewis that is at the door, you walk in there and you, you start to look. If you look towards the front, you'll notice that there's something absent. And then you'll look to the right and you'll see it's just, it, there it is. And then if you were to look just down past where you would expect what I'm going to come to in a moment to be, you'll see that there's an altar sitting there. So the altar's in the middle. Then off to the right is the pulpit. Why is that? Well, it is a, a, a Protestant church now, but they were all originally built as Catholic churches. The altar was the central thing in the Catholic church. And the pulpit was off to the side, and that is repeated in ancient churches all over the country of England. See, when Calvin built his church, this is one thing he got right. I mean, I know we, we, we take it off with a pinch of salt, but this is one thing he got right. He built his churches. And right at the center of those, of those churches was the pulpit. So the product of the Reformation was this, was to move the preaching of the Word of God right to the center of things. And there's something that we should take away from that. And we are products of that Reformation, so to speak. And from that Reformation have come revivals, and come great awakenings, the great awakening started not too far from here. On the island of Manhattan, there was a, another, the second one that happened in the, in the province of Ulster, and spread out. There were Welsh revivals, Scottish revivals. There have been localized revivals. We all know of a series of gospel meetings. When God has moved and souls have been saved. What was the feature all about that? The centrality of the preached word of God. So I say today that history is proven. It's not as if we're coming to you with something, we reclaim something. And we're coming here today, hey, listen to this, you know, we study scripture and we've come up with it. This is a long succession of public preaching of the word of God that we're just looking to continue and defend. And it is proven, history is proven. Any final comments on, on that? I'm not knowing the pain. You got me. Well, thank you very much for your contrib uh, contributions. Uh, Lord, it's given help and trust that you will serve to underpin in us the necessity and the centrality of the priesthood of God. Shall we pray?